Hello there. Welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. My name is Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. And my name is Bob V... I mean, Justin uh, J. Wall <laughs> Vila over here on Heavy Hole Podcast uh, going on right now. Cinco de Mayo. How are my friends? How are you? How's it going? Yeah, I understand your bathroom is a spacious villa, all right? I don't know about any, anything else, Justin. What's going on? Oh, yeah. You know, listen, we're just uh, clanging and banging over here at the J-Wall compound. Um, been cleaning out my garage, uh, setting up the, the workshop, man, setting up the wood shop, uh, putting it all together, hammering nails, screwing screws, making joints. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And listen, if you guys will entertain me for a second, uh, I want to just reach down over here. And, uh, Give him a minute, my, Tom. Grab my plank over here, my my wood flex. <laughs> you know, even though it's not it's not it's not flexing because it's it's high quality non warping wood. Is that maple? Um, you damn right. Okay, it's fl- flame wood maple. You see it on yeah. all your Gibson tops right now. But I got it in a plank form, and I'm sitting here. You know, while you know, mid sanding of this beautiful Adirondack chair that I'm constructing right now in my wood shop, and I'm like, this shop deserves a name. Right, and this deserves, deserves okay. a name worthy of the heavy hole and the and and the acceptance of, of my two friends right here. So let me uh, mm. let me run some names by you and, and listeners of the heavy hole, man. Feel free, heavy oh, hole boy. podcast at gmail.com. You know, let's go. Like, all right, here we go. Uh, five five nails through the plank. Hmm. All right, that's your gut. All right, now, all right okay. that's okay. Okay, all right, here we go. Uh, Sanding through the eyes of a wrench. Uh, ooh, mm. it reminds me of a relationship I had once. Doesn't doesn't make much sense. Okay, um, all right. Uh, how about uh, I can see this beautiful, like on a beautiful woodcut sign, uh, deeds of flush. Ooh. <laughs> you know, making, yeah, I think you mi- you missed the boat on putting that one in the bathroom, like a little banner type thing, you know. Oh, that's damn, that's really good. All right, uh, all right, all right. Uh, just yeah, real quick off the list, construction hammer. You know, it's the opposite uh, of opposite of uh, demolition. Shout to demolition hammer. That's uh, right. Yeah, from so York, OGs from New York. Okay. okay. All right. Um, uh, nails. All right, no, all right, no, no, we're not gonna do that. Uh, all right, uh, uh, okay, all right, all right um, Justin, we gotta cut you off, man. This is a great well, idea. No, all right, okay. No, Justin, you're done. I like the idea, but we got we got a cool interview coming up. I don't Wait, have Tom, much of a week, did. by the way, because we're all inside still. It's cool. I'm having a good time. Uh, Will, how are you feeling? Uh, feeling a lot better, man. I'm feeling a okay. Um, I, I took advantage of some extra time to listen to lots of progressive death metal. Uh, through the weekend, I'm pumped. I'm ready to go. I'm on my third cup of coffee today. Um, right now, Justin, I need you to page your Milwaukee Tools representative and try to find me a size X, uh, size four X spacesuit. Tom, I need you to fire up the Satanic spaceship uh, because we need to get Mike Browning on the phone via a huge intercom like Star Trek. All right, put him on. Let's do it. Hi, Mike. 
Hey, how you doing? Thanks a lot for your time, Mike. Um, and uh, Mike, you know, speaking of uh, your time, like I always say on the show, we're trying to be respectful of your time, and we have a lot to, to get through with you. Is it right if we kind of start the line of questioning? Sure, man. I'm I'm ready. Awesome, man. Um, you know, we got a lot of questions about uh, Nocturnus, Nocturnus AD. Uh, you know, after death, things, all that, all that stuff. But uh, you know, you're famously from Tampa, Florida, right? Yep, yep. I was born here and still here. <laughs> Are you from a particularly musical family? Um, n- not not actually musical. My mom, uh, back in the seventies, uh, she sang in, in in a in a like a you know a seventies rock band. Not not anything big, just like locally stuff. That's crazy. Yeah, I used to you know why they used to practice at at, at at you know our house. So you know I'd you know bring all the drums and stuff in and start practicing and. You know, they did like Janis Joplin and Creedence Clearwater Revival, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Not heavy rock, just regular type 70s rock. Yeah, it's a cool experience, though. Yeah, I remember always watching the drummer, you know, and like, oh, this is pretty cool, you know. So I'd always be sitting, I was probably, uh, I think, about 10 or 12 around that time. Probably about 10 or 11, actually. And, uh, you know, I used to watch him practice and sit, sit there and uh, sit close to the drums, and that's probably why my mom was like okay with it when i said oh, i want to try to play drums that's pretty interesting and uh before we get too far along with the music let me ask you this um at, at what age do you develop an interest in things of an occult nature well that was actually probably about a year before i, I well i wouldn't say a year before i started playing drums but but like maybe seriously playing drums um i think i was about 14 or 15 i i you know got the uh satanic bible and the necronomicon you know they were they were in the uh in pretty pretty available in some stores so i think i bought both of those books my mom was kind of like into not heavily into it but she was like into the pagan witchcraft type stuff for a little while you know back in the 70s and 80s and and so you know kind of led me into it a little bit you know into wanting to read about the kind of stuff and i and the more i read the more i wanted to read and you know it just it, it kind of grew from there Wow. And, uh, you know, I know from research, we listened to a lot of uh, other interviews you've done in the past. You mentioned the Necronomicon, and I heard you talk about, if I got it right, that uh, some of your vocal patterns are influenced by chanting from the Necronomicon. Is that accurate? Um, Yes. I kind of that's what I kind of describe my vocals as more of a chanting style, uh, because they're they're. What, what's what I realized was, and I didn't even think about this, is most people, when they write uh, lyrics to a song, they write the lyrics to the melody, you know, the guitar and stuff like that. And I noticed I, I didn't really think about this for quite a long time, and I was doing it, you know, unconsciously, you know, like, but I was basically writing to my drum patterns, vocals, so right. I could sing and play. You know, so when I started writing uh, vocals for myself, so when I started singing in Morbid Angel, it, I was trying to write along with the drum, I guess you could say, along with the drum rhythms more than the uh, the guitar rhythms. So right. it kind of it came out like more of a chanting style than more of a singing style. Do you think that like um, diving into heavy music was conducive for that? since melody kind of goes out the window a little bit more with the um, performance of, of more aggressive vocals? 
yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I, I, I totally see that. You know, the, the first form of anything was drums, basically. You know, even back in the caveman days, you know, they had drums and then they started chanting along with them. And, you know, that was basic, basic occult stuff, too. Um, a lot of shaman and, and, and uh, you know, aboriginal tribes, stuff like that. They all chant and play drums. And uh, that's a, a good way for, for evocation, for evoking things. Yeah, absolutely. Or invoking yeah, things, uh, too. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, like, primal uh, approach. and um, Exactly, uh, yeah, that's where it all starts, you know. Yeah, um, and and speaking of where it all starts, well, something I was going to ask you, uh, you know, you just explained to us how you know your mother had an interest in in uh, forms of uh, witchcraft, I guess you could say, and music and rock music and things like that. But something I was going to ask you is, you're in high school in the early '80s, you're into heavy metal and the occult, and this is a period that we talk about on our show from time to time that was called the Satanic Panic period where you had um, sensationalized in the news, uh, you know, the infamous Judas Priest fans and, um, and the teenage uh, so-called satanic cults and things like that. What was life like for you around that time, being a teenager, uh, you know, into that sort of thing when, when the culture was, was focused on it so much? Well, I kind of was into it a little bit before that. Like the early 80s, you really didn't have that going on yet, you know. Uh, that kind of didn't start till I would say, the, the later 80s. Uh, the satanic panic thing, you know, uh, with Judas Priest and, and their lyrics and all that stuff. So I was already well into <laughs> Morbid Angel, and I think I was actually, when a lot of that stuff was going on, I was in Nocturnus and then Asheron. So, because I know Vince was, was uh, when I was in Asheron, he had some big bouts with Bob Larson and stuff like that, and, you know, that that's when that really... The, the late 80s, early 90s, most of that stuff was happening then. So I was already pretty <laughs> well-versed in my bands and, and what I was uh, doing. And yeah. uh, so it didn't really bother me. I, 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 you know, to me, that stuff was just natural for me. So I never really thought about it as uh, sensational or anything like that. You know, I, I, I kind of used the music to, to uh, like, like I said before, you know, evoking things and, and, and that nature of uh, chanting type stuff, like, like from the Necronomicon. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, as we move forward, people know, uh, you know, there's like in, in the book Choosing Death, and it's been documented very well, your history with Morbid Angel. Um, and, uh, you know, you went to uh, high school with Trey, right? Yep. Uh, but yeah, we somebody actually, else... that's where we met. Yeah, and then you guys went on to uh, to to form Morbid Angel. I wanted to ask you about um, somebody. Uh, you know, I, I'll just say respectfully. You, we know that you have lost uh, several friends the last few years in the Florida metal scene. Uh, the first of which we're going to bring up is uh, Richard Brunel. If maybe you could just speak to his memory and working with him back in the day. Yeah, it was actually I was the one who wanted to get Richard Brunel into Morbid Angel because for a long time it was a. Uh, just me, Trey, and Dallas, and we were a three-piece, and, and for a while, we were just used to jam instrumental because we didn't have a PA and, uh, you know, things like that, so we kind of wrote quite a few songs before they even had words, you know, we had, you know, some long jamming type songs and stuff like that, and uh, and we were trying out different vocalists, but not too many people had PAs back then, you know, so it was kind of difficult. Um, but when we were still kind of in the jamming stages, 
uh, and just kind of like jamming and writing songs that weren't we weren't huge yet, but we were starting to get popular. Uh, what we used to do is just like rent a generator and set up at at the beach and play or go into a park. There used to be this park, well, still here in Tampa with this big hill. And we used to take all our stuff up to the top of the hill, and they had plugs up there, like a little pavilion kind of thing, and we used to just play there. And we'd get these big crowds since we didn't have vocals or anything. We would just be like jamming. It would sound like a really heavy Jimi Hendrix type of thing with just the three of us. But um, there was this house um, where this band called Power Surge. They were kind of like a, a heavier Queensryche kind of band. They were on Roadrunner. But they had a house, a uh, big party house. And they used to have huge parties every weekend. And I used to go to a lot of them. And I was at the party one time, and I met this guy there, uh, which was Richard Brunell. And, you know, I'd been trying to convince Trey to get, for us to get a second guitar player because he loved to play so many leads. And I didn't want to stop that, you know, but half, half the night, you know, we were we had leads going on. So I said, man, you know, it'd be so much better if we had rhythms under those leads, you know, and uh, then, you know, you could even trade off leads and things like that with Judas Priest and Iron Maiden coming out and Slayer. It was like, uh, you know, we should definitely have trade lead offs and harmonies and things like that. And so he kind of saw the situation as as a benefit. And so we tried out Richard. He was the only guitar player that we ever really tried out. And and uh, right away, they just kind of clicked together. So it was a it was a cool thing. You know, I saw him at a party, asked him if he wanted to join Morbid Angel, and he's like, yeah, I'll try. You know, he was a very shy person, which was, uh, you know, it was kind of hard to get him out of his shell. So was Trey. But I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about that kind of stuff. You know, I've, I've played in school bands and stuff like that. So before I ever was in a band, I did marching band in stadiums for like the Bucks and we did a Miami Dolphins game so I've played in, in stadiums before I <laughs> you know before <laughs> I even played in a, a, a metal band you know marching band so I, it, it didn't bother me to play in front of people and we got Richard and things you know started really shaping into real songs at that point and Dallas uh, ended up singing and Richard tried to do some vocals as well but every time he would sing he would stop playing guitar so that really wasn't going to work, you know, with the situation. And, and we, you know, we did a couple shows with just me and Trey and Dallas, and then we did a few more shows with Richard, Trey, and me and Dallas. And Dallas ended up, he was big time into drugs, and he got busted and went to jail for like quite a while, like 10 years the first time. And uh, so we kind of got in a situation where we had to get... <clears throat> Uh, a main vocalist you know and at that point I was uh, I knew the words I knew what the band was about and I and I you know, I listened I, I liked Exciter a lot and um, they had a singing drummer so I said you know let me try it you know I, I, it's not going to hurt to try and it just kind of worked it just kind of clicked at that point so I started singing and Richard quit singing and, and I was singing and playing drums and then we got this guy John Ortega on bass and he he was the one that replaced Dallas, and yeah, then we got signed <laughs> to Goric Records, which was owned by Dave, David Vincent, and uh, went and recorded the Abominations of Desolation album. So that's yeah, basically and, uh, how that all, all kind of went into play. Yeah, and and you know, like I said, the story is very well documented. Um, that how you ended up leaving Morbid Angel. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into that. Um, 
But you know, I've heard you tell the story before about how you you ended up. Uh, I think you kicked Trey's ass, kind of, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, wh what happened was, well, we recorded in April, okay, the album, and Trey ended up staying up there, and uh, we we went up to um, Charlotte, North Carolina, to record the album, and it, it was actually in a country music studio. So the engineer there knew nothing about metal. But David had hired uh, Bill Matoyer, who is pretty famous on Metal Blade. He he did he worked on the first Slayer, the first Metallica. He worked on you know all the Lizzie Borden stuff. I mean, basically almost everything that Metal Blade used to put out, he he pretty much had a hand in eighty percent of it. You know, mixing and and all kinds of engineering and all that. So David had hired him to work on the album too because the engineers in North Carolina and do nothing about metal. It was, like I said, it was a country music studio. So we uh, recorded the album in like a week. And then David sent all of us home and kept Trey up there for the mixing. And we didn't know that was going to happen. We figured, you know, we we're going to work on the whole album. So all the ideas I had, stuff like that, I never even got to implement into the, into the album at all. It was just like, as soon as I finished my vocal tracks, it was like, okay, now you guys go home. And we're like, what? Yeah, I'm going to keep, you know, David Vincent said that. And I'm going to keep Trey here for a week and we're going to mix the album. So I was like, well, what can we do? You know, he was making the decisions. It was his label. So we did that. And when Trey came back, he was just like a completely different person. He acted completely different. And he told me in, in confidence, oh, we got to get rid of John Ortega, the bass player. And, you know, I was thinking, I didn't really like David from the beginning, to tell you the truth. Um, and I thought he wanted to be the bass player, but he had a band too, and they needed a guitar player. So what I found out was that he was trying to convince Trey that whole week to quit Morbid Angel and join his band. But Trey didn't want to do that. At least at the time, he didn't want to do that. So when Trey got back, he said, we got to get rid of Johnny, but we had that one show at Rocky Point Beach Resort. You've probably seen the video. It's pretty popular. Um, that was in May yeah. of 86. Yeah. So we played that show, and I had John, John Ortega, and we'd already recorded the album by that point. And so we played that show, and then Trey's like, well, we got to fire Johnny. And uh, David found a bass player for us who lives in Atlanta. That was Sterling Scarborough from, you know, that I ended up in Incubus with. So Sterling came down. So Trey fired Johnny, and, um, and Sterling came down from Georgia. And the devil came down from Georgia. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he started learning our songs. And we did another show with him, with Sterling. We did one show with Sterling. And what was happening was was that Sterling was going to go ahead and re-record all the bass tracks on the Abominations album. So we were kind of waiting, you know, for that to happen. And we were working on some, some of the Incubus songs that Sterling had. They were going to be Morbid Angel songs, like Reanimator's Mutilation, stuff like that. And we did a show in July, early July, with, with Sterling. And after that, like, we went back to kind of showing him everything so he could replace the, uh, the bass tracks on, on the Abominations record. And then one day, uh, I was uh, at work, and I was close to Trey's house, so I was going to take lunch. I said, oh, I'll stop at Trey's house and see what's going on with the album. So I stopped by there. We, we The band had a house, but he didn't live there. He lived with his mom in an apartment. And and Sterling and, and myself and uh, Richard all lived in a house where we actually jammed at. 
So I went to Trey's apartment and I see my girlfriend's car out there. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. You know? So I went up to the front door. I put my ear on the door and I could hear it. All I could hear was a TV. So I actually, literally, I kicked the front door open and broke it off the hinges. And they were laying on top of each other on the couch kissing. They still had their clothes on, but that was what was going on. So I don't know if it had been happening longer than this or this was the first time and I caught it happening or what. But I didn't really, I got really pissed off in that because I was at work, you know, and I was in a work vehicle and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of like got really pissed off and I left. And then Trey had called Richard and said, uh, you know, I'm going to quit the band. Uh, I'm going to come pick up my stuff tonight, this and that. And, and I was just like, wow. You know, so when Trey got there, I tried to talk to him about it. And it, he was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to leave and I'm going to join with David Vincent and his band. Uh, so, but it, Trey, Trey had came up with the name Morbid Angel. So it was kind of his situation anyway, you know, but yeah. he, uh, he said he was quitting and all that. And I just, I went into a rage and I just beat his ass like really bad. I was throwing him up against the walls and Sterling was laughing at Trey and, and Richard went and hid in his room and I was, I was, I beat the hell out of him. And the next day Richard was like, Oh, Trey called me again. And I think I'm going to go to North Carolina with him and join with these guys. Cause they got a bunch of money and they got, you know, all this and that the record label. And we're not going to put out this album now. Trey doesn't want to put out the album. So that's basically how all that happened. <clears throat> so I got left here, and Sterling and I got left here. And that's when Sterling was like, well, let's just go ahead and, you know, redo my Incubus band and we'll get a guitar player. And so that's kind of like what happened there. Yeah, um, you know, I apologize for being blunt, uh, but it's it's obviously it's a story that you, you've been very frank about over the years in, in other um, platforms. My follow-up question to that would be... Um, have you ever, I guess, so to speak, uh, made peace or reconnected uh, with Trey since that? Like at first, no, you know, of course not. When he moved and then he was uh, like at first, he was even talking a bunch of stuff in the zines about me and Sterling and this and that. And, you know, all of a sudden the, the album was terrible and not good enough. But, but for those couple of months after we recorded it, he loved it. And there's, you know, plenty of documentation of that, too. You know, so it just it was all of that so I got kind of mad for a while but then by the time they had got back to Tampa they moved you know uh, Richard and and Trey moved up there to North Carolina and they <laughs> stayed up there for about a year or so and then they put out that Thy Kingdom Come thing with, with Wayne Hartzell on drums they hadn't even got Pete yet at that point and kind of like after that when they kind of by the time they got back to Tampa and moved back to Tampa it was like around 88 I think it was and I was already doing Nocturnus full force and it was going very well. So I really didn't care anymore. You know, I was one of those kind of people where after we got in a fight, I figured, okay, you know, the girl's done with, you know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll beat up Trey for what he did and he won't ever do it again. I didn't expect the band to fall apart and all that, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you know, back then in 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 the, in the seventies, eighties, you know, you used to get in fights all the time, and nobody sued anybody, nobody called the cops on anybody, nothing like that. You just dusted yourselves off and Carry you know on. did what you did after that, you know, and that's what I thought was going to happen, but it didn't. <laughs> yeah, all things considered, that's a pretty gentlemanly way to go about it. 
Well, you know, it used to be, but now that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, yeah. You just don't see anybody fighting without somebody calling the cops or somebody getting sued. So I'm sure if that had happened today, it would have been a whole different situation. I probably would have ended up in jail and probably with a lawsuit. And it would have been on Twitter is what, if it happened today. And then uh, court of public opinion, you know, you would have had uh, 900 other people. Yeah, there's no kind of social media back then. Everything had to be done through snail mail, and it took, you know, sometimes a month, you know, to write somebody, especially somebody in Europe. You know, you'd write somebody uh, snail mail back in the 80s, you wouldn't hear back for a month, you know. (laughs) So it's not like today, that's for sure. News didn't spread that fast back then. Yeah, it speaks to the power of all those zines uh, back in the day, you know, um that's the only way you heard about certain bands or like an instance like this like you know like you said he uh trey said some, some remarks about the album or whatever in a zine it, you know it was very powerful back then right right and i at that time you know i didn't have a big band like they did so i really had no voice back then i couldn't retort and say anything back to any of the stuff that was being said about me i you know it took a long time for people to realize because even uh to this day on the Morbid Angel website it says that Abominations of Desolation is a demo and, yeah. and it's not it's, yeah. a, it's, it's the real first Morbid Angel record I don't care if it was released or not at the time it, it was recorded as an album and we had a record contract and I, I, I posted the record contract I still have it uh, the paper contract so I posted that there's a few people you know that have posted um, like letters back and forth with Trey in that one time after we, you know, in that little bit of time after we recorded the album where he was talking about the album coming out. He even put out a zine himself, Trey, and I have a copy of it called Abominations. And it's got, you know, it's got uh, advertisement for the album coming out in it. So there was a good, and there's actually a rehearsal too. Uh, These guys from uh, this magazine called Mega Wimp, I think it was Swedish, was a, a European magazine. And they came over, uh, to do interviews and stuff like that from Europe and they interviewed us and they recorded a rehearsal it's on YouTube and you can you know when, when we had Sterling it's the only recording with Sterling on it basically um, us playing Reanimators Mutilations too so that was proven that that was going to be a Morbid Angel song actually before before the band split up um, but you can hear Trey in that rehearsal you know talking about the album coming out and <laughs> How, how fast it was and this and that for the time it was you know there was back in 86 there wasn't anybody really doing blast beats and not that mine are you know fantastic or anything like that I'm, I'm nowhere near a blast beat drummer the way Peter is but you know that album the Morbid Angel album didn't come out till 88 or 89 actually so yeah. you're talking three years before Pete uh, you know was even in the band I was I was doing these songs so it, it is an album, but uh, back to the original thing, uh, you know, Trey and I, we talked uh, some, somewhat, and he was actually hanging out with Mike Davis quite a bit and uh, in the early 90s, because uh, they were both, he really liked Mike Davis's plan. So they were hanging out quite often, and then they got into some argument, Trey went on tour, and I guess Mike went over there and was hanging out with Trey's wife at the time, and Trey got all upset and oh, they man. had a big tip and yeah 
so I guess it kind of happened back to him. But I don't know what, if anything, sexually happened or not, you know. But Trey got all upset with Mike about that, and they were no longer friends. And then it kind of just like I didn't talk to him for a long, long time. And it's kind of funny, but they just played in Tampa, like in December. And I went to the show, and after the show, you know, I, I saw Trey backstage. Not well, actually out back. And it was a bunch of people hanging out by the bus, and uh, my friends like, "Oh, come on, talk to Trey." And he kind of got us talking again. So I've, I've, I've actually been talking to Trey text-wise off and on since January. So we're well, kind of like well, talking again. That's that's good to hear, man. Uh, you know, move, moving forward, uh, you know, as men, sometimes we gotta. Sometimes. I'm way over what happened along. I, I don't forget things, but I'm way over it. You know, that's for sure. Yeah. Around that time, as we get into Nocturnus, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you about some of the music because because the the first lineup of Nocturnus ends up being a lot of musicians that are very important to your uh, your catalog. Um, and I want to talk about Vincent Crowley, who people maybe know from his work with Acheron. How far back do you go with that guy, and where does your working relationship begin with him? Well. Um after after the Morbid Angels split up, um, Sterling and I did Incubus, and we had a guitar player named Gino Marino, and that only lasted like six months. And we did record that one three-song demo, which everybody seems to really, it's a cult classic now, <laughs> that God Died on His Knees demo. Um, but Sterling and Gino got into a big fight one day. They went to the beach and got all drunk and in front of these girls. I don't know, Gino embarrassed Sterling or something like that. And then Sterling said something and Gino punched him in the face and knocked him down and ran off. And then he quit. And I would, at that point I was just like, you know, this is, I'm Sterling was a madman. I mean, he just used to do the craziest stuff and try to start fights with people all the time and everywhere we went. And I was just like, you know, I, I had enough at that point when they got into a fight and Gino quit and everything. I was just like, you know, I'm done with Incubus 2. I just wanted to get away from the whole situation, and that's when I decided to do a band called Nocturnus. <clears throat> so the first person I contacted was Richard Bateman, and um, he had just got, he had just, he was in Agent Steel at the time, and they were on tour, and John Cyrus, the singer, was doing all kinds of weird stuff with, with this other guy, and Richard actually quit in the middle of the tour and came back to Tampa, and, um, so I talked to him, and he had, was literally like home just a couple weeks, and, I, and then this had happened with me too. And I said, well, let's start a band. And he said, sure. So I started practicing with Richard, and we wrote a couple songs just bass and drums and vocals. And then um, we got Vince as the first guitar player. So Vince was actually the first guitar player in Nocturnus. Okay. He, was, he had a band called Entity, and... And, and um, they had split up, so he wasn't really doing anything. And I just, I knew him from the scene, you know, they, they had, he, he went to the same places, you know, the scene wasn't super huge at the time. It was good, but it wasn't huge, you know, so everybody kind of knew everybody in Tampa. And so I asked Vince, he, I knew he was a big time into the, you know, occult stuff like that. So I thought this would be the perfect person, you know, fast to play guitar. So he joined, and then later on, a couple months after he joined, Gino ended up joining. So that was actually the first lineup of of um, Nocturnus was that. But it started yeah, with just bass and drums, really. 
and uh, then Vince was the first guitar player, and we were actually doing half of the songs we were doing back then were actually old um, entity songs that Vince had written, and which actually some of them became Asheron songs. So they went from yeah. entity to to not turn this to Asheron, <laughs> the same songs. They all stayed with Vince. Yeah, um, and you know, like like I always we do a lot of research in preparation for these interviews. Uh, and it was really interesting tracing the evolution um, of, of, of Nocturnus, Acheron, After Death, which we'll get into. Uh, but you mentioned Richard Bateman, who um, passed away in 2018, and Gino Marino, who passed away in 2017. Um, you know, our condolences. We know that those guys were very important to you, to your work, and to your life. Maybe if you could just talk, because weren't those guys also involved in After Death? Yeah, um, at one point when when I first started after death, it was it was myself, um, Richard Bateman, and Gino again. So it was the actual first Nocturnus lineup again, but without Vince. And we had another guitar player named Mike Walkowski, who was just kind of rhythm guitar player at that point. So he never really did any leads in, in after death. But that's kind of like what happened. Yeah, when I was going to reform Nocturnus because Nocturnus had split up um, and I didn't know they, they were practicing again I didn't even know it as Nocturnus and they hadn't put anything out or anything so I didn't know it and I was going to redo Nocturnus in 1999 and so the first show uh, we did we had a show planned uh, myself and Richard and, and Mike and uh, this other guy was in the band because Gino didn't last too long <laughs> Him and Richard almost got into a fight. Gino is a type of person that, that he liked to start fights, too. He drank and started fights with all kinds of people. So they got into a fight in, uh, in my house, actually, where we were practicing before we even played out. So Gino never ended up playing out with After Death. He was only in it for a couple months in the beginning. But it was the actual, you know three out of the four original Nocturnus members were in After Death in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's, yeah, that's the point I was trying to make, is um, just not to gloss over uh, Richard Bateman and Gino Marino's con uh, contributions to, um, to, the, to the legacy, uh, you know, as they've passed away recently. And, um, you know, not also to, to gloss over the original uh, Nocturnus run, because we know that by the second demo, The Science of Horror... Uh, that's Mike Davis is actually recruited by isn't he Gino Marino's cousin? Yes, yep. That's that's how we got him in, in the band. Um, and Vince had again, Gino had kind of pissed off Vince, and Vince was like not wanting to work with Gino. And Vince said, I'm just gonna leave and do my own band, but he actually didn't like Florida either. He, he hates the heat, so <laughs> he wanted to move up north. And I think it was Pittsburgh, it was the first place he moved. I believe it's, it was a lot colder than 87. Yeah. yeah. So he moved up there and that's when he formed Asheron up there. Uh, and, and Gino was like, Oh, I got a cousin that's taking a lot of guitar lessons and he's pretty good. And, uh, you know, so we got, and his name's Mike. So we got him in the band and, uh, that, so that worked out. That's how that worked out. And, and we started practicing with Mike and myself and, and Bateman and, and Gino and then um, Nasty Savage lost their bass player, 
he put his hand through a plate glass window on tour somewhere and cut like all the tendons in his hand and everything and couldn't play bass at all and they had a bunch wow. of shows scheduled and festivals and stuff and they asked Richard to join and so Richard kind of just like up and quit Nocturnus to do Nasty Savage which I, I don't blame him they were huge at the time you know they were doing festivals in Poland and everywhere and we were just getting started we hadn't even really hardly played out yet but a couple local shows so Richard quit and that's when we got Jeff Estes. He was a friend of Mike, Et Mike Davis's. They went to school together. And that's actually how we got Lou Panzer on keyboards because they all three went to school together. So, so that's kind of like how the band kind of changed around. Yeah, the whole the whole dynamic of the band um, kind of changes. Now, back, back that at that point, did you start seeing it as maybe like a Team A, Team B dynamic within the band? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was Vince and and Gino never really got along, and and because Gino was like very egotistical type of person, thought he was the best guitar player on the planet, and told you so, you know. <laughs> and uh, and Vince, you know, he he ended up playing bass because he wasn't like like super technical on guitar or anything. He had more like Celtic Frost kind of guitar style, and that's probably why you went ahead and just went ahead and started playing bass instead so he could sing and stuff like that so i guess gino was kind of intimidating vince quite a bit and vince didn't want to put up with it so he kind of just quit you know so that's that's kind of like how that happened and then gino got mike in there because it, it was his little cousin so he thought you know oh this guy will be underneath me too but then mike kind of got better than gino <laughs> So it's kind of funny, but yeah, it kind of AB'd like that, you know, the, the the whole band from the first demo, which was, you know, myself, Bateman, Vince, and Gino, was completely different from the science of horror. Um, Even though and it was Gino, Mike, me, and, and uh, Jeff Estes, and, and Lou on, on keyboards. Uh, you know, you, you guys go on to record The Key, which is put out in 1990. Uh, you get signed to Earache Records. Uh, and at, at that point, because we know that by 1992, Mike Davis, uh, Sean uh, McNenny, if I got it right, and Lou Panzer, they copyright the name, be, and they kind of do something behind your back, which I wanted to get into. But I just want to know, before that happens, did you ever feel like there was uh, a, uh, a rift between you guys be, be leading up to that? Well, it was it was kind of it was kind of weird because. We, uh, well, right in the beginning, Jeff Estes was drinking a lot, and he didn't end up, he, when we went to, rec well, two weeks before we recorded The Key, uh, Tom Morris came out to watch his practice. And so, uh, you know, he wanted to kind of get a feel of what the album was going to be like. So we start practicing for, for Tom, and, and after we played a song, Tom was like, uh, Jeff, can, can you play that bass part? I want to see what you're doing there and how you're playing the bass and how your sound is. And Jeff was like, well, I kind of messed it up and blah, blah. He was all drunk, you know, and he's like, so he tried to play the bass part by himself and he couldn't do it. He messed it up really bad. And he kept trying and kept messing it up. And he just kind of set his bass down and left. And we didn't see him for that whole two weeks before we recorded the album. And we didn't know if we were going to even have a bass player on the album. So we we go to record the album and there Jeff is before we even get to Morris Sound in the parking lot of Morris Sound drinking beer 
arguing with his girlfriend <laughs> in the middle of the parking lot. Drunk. Uh, nine o'clock in the morning. Wow. And he, you know, he just basically kind of like left because he couldn't play again. He was so drunk. And so a lot of people don't know this, but Mike Davis ended up having to do all the bass tracks on the key. That's why they're very low in the mix. So even though Jeff, his, his picture's on the album, actually Mike was the one who recorded all the bass tracks. We couldn't use anything that Jeff was trying to do. And so while we were recording other stuff, like keyboards and things like that, Mike was in there in, in one of the rooms in Morrisound, like figuring out all the bass parts and re-recording them. So we had to do that. And so that was kind of a mess. It, it would have been much better if we had a really good steady bass player on that album for me to lock into and play, you know, but there yeah. was a, like, it was terrible. So that kind of, that's where the key kind of suffered quite a bit in that, that department. And you can really barely hear the bass because Mike ended up doing it with a pick. And, and, you know, he didn't, even though he wrote a lot of the rhythms, it, it was still hard for him to just pick up a bass and play, uh, play it on an album, you know? So, it, that's what happened there and then we got this other guy to do the tour that we didn't know at all Jim Sullivan and he did both tours because we had two tours back to back pretty much the uh, European one with Bolt Thrower and the uh, Grind Crusher tour so we did those two tours with this guy Jim on bass and we didn't know him he was from like Fort Lauderdale we tried out a bunch of people and he was he basically was one of the only ones that came in and just played the songs right you know, so we took him on tour and we didn't know him at all. And he was really strange to have full conversations with himself and stuff like that. And then we played in Orlando and then we were going to play in Tampa the next night on the Grind Crusher tour. And we all left the bus from Orlando because we all had girlfriends at the time and Jim didn't. And we left him on the bus by himself. And some girl had came on the bus that was like in high school. And she wanted to do an interview with, with, you know, Nocturnus, but none of us were there. And so Jim took her in the back room and then he tried to get, make advances on her. And she ended up like running out of the bus. And we were like, you know, after, you know, after the tour was over, we had to fire him. Yikes. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. So, you know, it's got, well, we didn't know him at all. You know, so we were yeah. just fine. Yeah. two tours booked already and was like, we had to get somebody in there to do the tours so that's kind of what happened there but um yeah but the things it, it was weird after we recorded the first album did those two tours and 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 we got another bass player just to record the thresholds album but he didn't want to tour at the time and uh but before that eric was saying well, you know, a lot of people think you guys are really good live, but that there's not enough movement. There's no front man. You got this huge drum set. You know, we think you should either quit playing drums and be the front man or get a front man and just play drums. And I said, well, I'm, I'm really more of a drummer than anything, so I don't want to quit playing drums and sing. I'm not, I'm not really a front man. You know, I felt weird about just being a front man. So I didn't want to do either thing. And Eric started saying, well... You know, if you want a bigger budget for the second album and if you want a video, because MTV was getting big at that time and they had Headbangers Ball, and we really wanted to get a video that would be on Headbangers Ball. And Eric said, well, 
if you guys don't get a singer, then you're not going to do a video. And you're going to get a smaller budget for the second record than you what you got for the first. Mm-hmm. So everybody in the band was like, no, let's do this. They wanted to all lose the occult aspect and get more science fiction and, and, and you know, get a front man and hopefully be the next dream theater. And I was just like, I really don't want to do any of that stuff. I just want to kind of keep going where we are. Because I had a story on the key that I wanted to continue on thresholds, which didn't happen because I didn't end up singing or writing a lot of the lyrics. And that's when the split started happening. Um, I guess Lou figured out that if he wrote lyrics, he could ask for more money than everybody else. Because I, when I was kind of running the band uh, on the key, I said any any royalties that we make, we're just going to split evenly. Any show money, split evenly, anything that we make is going to be split evenly no matter who does what and I guess Lou found out from like people like Morbid Angel and stuff that you could make a lot more money if you wrote the lyrics and did this and that you know and got paid for what you wrote instead of just an equal amount so everybody started fighting on writing material and wanted to split the royalties completely different on thresholds and that's when everybody's ego started getting involved and everybody wanted to kind of run the band and I wasn't in control of it anymore. So I kind of lost control of the situation when I, when I stopped singing and we became a six piece band, you know, with a singer. So that's when I think Lou found out that I never trademarked the name, but I didn't think you had to because we had, you know, records in every record store. And, you know, our name was well known, so I thought, well, nobody's going to be able to steal the Nocturnus name because we're already an established band. Right. We had a label, we had a contract. So I never figured somebody in my own band would go behind my back and trademark the name. But they did. So, and it was all Lou's idea. He wanted to run the band. His, uh, he went from never being in a band before, he was the only person that had never been in a band. And his ego just got so big because he literally went from his apartment being a cook at Ruby Tuesdays to being out on the road in a big band with a tour bus. And it just went to his head big time. And he got to the point where he wanted to run the band. And, and you know, he, he, he knew Sean and Mike and everybody. They all went to school together. So I didn't really, I wasn't in their little clique. And those guys weren't into the occult at all or anything like that. So they wanted to get away from that kind of thing. Cause like you said, you know, the thing in the nineties with the, you know, Satanism and stuff being kind of, mm-hmm. you know, the news kind of harping on it. And they wanted to kind of get away from that and go more towards the, uh, like the dream theater kind of style. Right. So I really didn't want to do any of that stuff. I wanted to keep things the way they were, but when you got four other people going, Nope, we don't want to do that. It was either I had to fire everybody, but we were all under contract, so I couldn't really just do that. When you sign an earache contract, uh, everybody signs it in the band. So you're kind of signed separately as well to the label because there's a clause in most earache contracts that says if you leave the band, your next project they get first to pick if they want to sign it or not. So all all of us signed the earache label separately, basically. And, you know, so everybody had a kind of like a stock in the band kind of CEO thing, you know. It became more of a corporation at that point when we signed a label. Interesting look into 
uh, some greasy music industry stuff. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't know that that much kind of stuff can go on behind behind everything else that's happening, but it does. So, something uh, I was going to uh, ask you about is uh, getting signed to Earache Records, kind of at the height of the big grindcore death metal boom of the early '90s. There. Um, Compared to, uh, you know, you've since obviously put out, um, you know, for example, with Nocturnus AD, you've put out a record with Profound Lore. What are the differences in working with labels in the in the climate of the scene uh, for, for someone like you who's, who's been through both eras? Well, Eric, I mean, back in the day when we signed, right at first especially, they were giving out, like, tons of money for tour support and everything. Uh, the, the Grind Crusher tour, we were opening for that tour so the band was making $150 a night on that tour now the tour cost us for 45 shows uh, $50,000 so you can do the math and $150 a night does not equal $50,000 so we lost you know they gave us $50,000 tour support to do the Grind Crusher tour because we had two tour buses you know know, one for us and Godflesh and one for Napalm and the crew but all that stuff had to be paid for. So our share of one bus, uh, you know, half of a bus for 45 shows, two months, was was huge. Gas, the driver, hotels, food, everything had to be paid back. And we were only making $150 a night. So we lost every bit of royalties that we would have made off the key, basically, for doing the Grind Crusher tour. But back then, a band could sell, you know, the key sold like 70,000 copies back then. So it did sell very well. But, you know, all of our royalties pretty much went to tour support for, for a tour that we were really making basically no money on. Wow, that's that sounds incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I mean, like today, a label would never be able to give you tour support. They just can't, you know. Back yeah. then... I mean, Morbid Angel, I think their third album was close to a $100,000 budget, recording wow. budget. And, and you know, King Diamond spent way over that on some of his albums. Yeah. And these days, you know, a band's lucky to get three or $4,000 for recording. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and I just bring up, um, you know, you're working with more of modern labels uh, because I, I've always made the point that the last, probably even the last decade, we've been seeing like a death metal renaissance, so to speak. Uh, death metal is very popular again. Um, unfortunately, you know, obviously now, right now with the uh, the, the epidemic going on, um, the pandemic going on, uh, you know, a lot of these tours and cancels are, uh, are and uh, festivals are canceled. But the last several years, uh, it's been like a very fruitful environment for old school death metal and death metal bands. And it seems like with promoters and labels and uh, fans, there's um, it's maybe a more friendly environment for bands. Would you say that? Oh, for sure, for sure. Like, Profound Lore, when we recorded, um, we hadn't actually, Nocturnus AD hadn't put out anything yet, you know, and not even a demo or anything. So we had recorded, like, six six of our songs ourselves, and we put one song out just to see what would happen, and it blew up. And I had, like, six or seven at least labels write write us, and, and I didn't even 
like send one demo out to anybody at all. We put it on YouTube and we put it on Facebook. And that was the only two places we put the song out. And I had so many labels writing and saying, we want to sign you, we want to sign you, we want to sign you. And and I told every label, I said, there's, you know, we want a very good budget, not huge, but good, you know. And we want a one song video and we want, you know, very good promotion in some of the color magazines. And those three demands, you know, are, are more of a 90s kind of demand, I would say, <laughs> um, yeah. rather than a today kind of command, because I would say that 95% of the labels said, well, we can't afford that. You know, we can't we can't afford to give you a budget for a video. And I, and I wasn't talking a huge budget. Like I was saying, maybe like two grand, which is not that big. No. you know to do a really good video and and every pretty much every single label said we can't afford that and I said well how are you going to push our, our band if you can't even afford a $2,000 video and and full full color ads how do you expect us to sell any records without those things so I kind of I set the standard kind of high for us to, to get you know as far as the demands that we wanted and I don't think they're that bad. You know, I wanted a good budget to record and, you know, some color ads and, and a video. That's all I asked. But like I said, 90-something percent of the labels said, we can't, we can't, we can't do that. We don't have that kind of money. And Profound Lore was just like, okay, tell me what kind of video you want to do. Tell me this. Tell me that, you know, what do you got? So I, I actually got the guy's phone number that owns the label, and he's in Canada, and, and, we started talking and he was just great. I mean, he was a long time Nocturnus fan. So it kind of, we kind of started talking about things and everything that I brought up, he was just like, yeah, that's a great idea. Well, what do you think of doing this too? And, and having this and that, and you know, and we just, the more we talked, it just got better and better. And he was for all for all the ideas that I had. So I said, well, this sounds like a good label, you know? I, well, I agree. Full, uh, full disclosure, uh, I'm in a band called Artificial Brain um, that puts our albums out through Profound Lore as well. So I, I'm ca I can't oh, be you like objective. Oh, I didn't, I, I didn't yeah, even know that. Yeah. Wow, I, I, man, you guys are, are wow, you guys are awesome. <laughs> Thanks, man. It, I, it's a it's a heavy compliment. I try not to bring it up too much on on the podcast, um, but I in love, this conversation, I love Artificial Brain. I love them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously man, you guys are so fucking technical. That's that's awesome. <laughs> well, well then you know, you know how how good Profound Lore is. I mean, I, I hope you've had a good experience with them as well. But I mean, everything yeah. we talked about, he he he, you know. And and one thing we we played in Australia, and I ran into the guys in Portal, and they were telling me how good the label was too. And that was another thing that kind of was like, okay, you know, now I actually talked to somebody on the label you know, the guys in portal and they were like, man, you know, we would, we, we don't want to be on another label. He said, I've got offers from tons of labels. And, and he said, I've turned them all down. Cause I really like profound lore. Yeah. Um, well, I, I I've had nothing. But... Brain. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's funny because in, in most of our interviews, uh, people ask us about Nocturnus, um, you know, Bobby's beat like the science fiction death metal, uh, thing, you know, and I, and obviously we always, uh, you know, we always say, of, of course, Nocturnus is the, um, uh, you know, one of the big influences for science fiction, death metal, and all that sort of thing. 
But, uh, you know, I mean, while we're talking about Paradox, which is the album that uh, Nocturnus AD put out on Profound Lore, uh, is there any uh, plans for new material coming out, a, a second album or anything? Yeah, um, for sure. Well, we signed a two-album deal so uh, with an option for a third. So, for sure, we were already working on new songs, and we have, uh, we're working on our fourth new song. Uh, Music-wise, I hadn't started on any of the lyrics, but I got a ton of ideas. I basically went, I probably have 15 or 20 song titles that, with the song title, I kind of have the whole story in my mind already. So... I come up with a title and it kind of has a whole story that goes along with it, like like a book, you know, like this is going to be the title of this book, and you kind of have the whole story in your mind, but you just got to write it out. So I have like 15 or 20 song titles in my phone, and, uh, you know, when I come up with a song title, it kind of has a story, or I'll, I'll see something cool and I'll say, oh, that's going to, that would make an awesome story for a song, you know, like a certain thing, a, a certain event happening or something like that. And, so I'll jot it down on my phone so I don't forget it. And so usually I wait till we have three or four songs, you know, the music written. And then I'll, then we'll do a like a raw recording of them and, and I'll sit down with them and kind of figure out which songs sound like the story that I want to write. And that's how I kind of match the vocals to the music. So yeah, we were, we've got like, we're working on our fourth new song for the next album. So we're, we were doing pretty good before this COVID-19 thing hit. We were practicing and basically just working on new material. So we had three songs completed and we're working on a fourth one and then all this stuff hit. And uh, we, haven't, we hadn't been practicing for almost two months. And last Saturday, we finally got together and started practicing again. and Got the three songs back going again and started working on the fourth one again. So I think we're good to go with back practicing once a week again right now and and right now especially now since all the shows that we had over the summer got canceled for festivals we're we're going to completely just work on new material yeah um yeah as is the case with a lot of bands everybody losing a lot of work uh now nowadays this summer um while we talk about your you're working on material and songwriting um, before we get completely out of the, the old school days, I did have a question um, because you described what happened after Thresholds where uh, the guys copyrighted the name Nocturnus behind your back. Um, and, and then uh, what, but what's interesting to me is after that, th- didn't they disband and not do anything with the band until uh, like maybe what was it, four or five years later and, and then they released Ethereal Tomb? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They um, like we went on the one tour with Confessor after Thresholds got released. We went on one tour with Confessor, and there were some good shows, but there was a lot of like pretty mediocre shows. And it was it was getting worse on tour. People were still wanting to do interviews with me, and like Lou was like, "Well, well, there's other people in the band now, and we have a, a vocalist now, and don't you want to do an interview with him? And people would go, no, I kind of still like the first album better. And they were saying stuff like that right in front of right in front of everybody. You know, like, our singer would be standing there, and they'd go, well, we still like Mike Browning's vocals, and, you know, we still want to do an interview with him. So that started getting animosity. And I just, I mean, halfway through the tour, I was ready to just, like, quit and go home. I didn't even care anymore. But, yeah, I was like... This band is not what it what I wanted it to be. We're under a contract, so I can't do much about it legally. 
And I didn't know about the name at that point either. I still didn't know they had done that. And so we finished the tour and the first time we went to get back together to practice after the tour, I came walking into the warehouse that we had and none of the stuff was set up. And everybody's sitting there with like these weird long faces and I'm like, what's up? And they're like, well, we've been talking and we think, well, at that point, um, I, I should say that I had already had talked to Vince and was going to do Asheron as a second band. And I told Vince that I would play on the next Asheron record with him. So he had literally got a warehouse just two doors down from our warehouse. And I was going to go back and forth and practice between the two bands. So when I walked into the warehouse, they fired me. And I said, well, you can't fire me from my own band. And they're like, well, we own the band now, too. We talked to Eric, and they said it was good. And they never really did talk to Eric, but they told me they did. And back then, there was still no internet. So I couldn't just go, you know, what's going on here, you know, and hop on the internet and talk to, to somebody in Eric. Yeah. So they told me that they had talked it over with Eric, and Eric thought it was a better idea, that I'd just join Asheron, and this and that and you know they they wanted to do the third album they wanted to completely get away from anything satanic and be total science fiction and now and they were like making these decisions for me saying oh we knew you wouldn't we weren't happy already so we think you'd be happier and and in a band with this huh. and you can do your satanic thing and blah 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 and so i was like at that point i was just like so tired of the whole thing when we were on the confessor tour like Mike Davis and Lou actually got into a fight one morning. I heard some scrambling going on, and I woke up, and they were outside the bus on the ground rolling around, punching each other. And so everything was imploding already at that point. And the ego, Lou's ego, was just out of hand. And he wanted to run the band at that point. And people kind of, the crowds didn't want that, you know? Like when we, like I said, when we do interviews, they still wanted to interview me, and I, here I am, not writing any more song, you know, lyrics hardly at all, not singing. I'm like, well, you know, I don't have much to do with the band anymore. None of the stories that I started and on the key got continued over to thresholds like I wanted to. Uh, there's not one thing from thresholds connects back to the key. So, and that's something that I really, really wanted to do. But I could have only done that if I was doing all the writing as far as the, the lyrics. So, you know, that didn't happen. I was just like kind of over the whole thing. I didn't like the guys anymore. They had changed as people. And so at that point when they said you're fired from your own band and we own the name now, I was just like, you know what? You can have it. And I just walked out of there. I walked down and Vince happened to be down there. And he came. I told him what happened. He goes, What? And he couldn't even believe it. I said, well, it looks like I'm in Asheron full-time now. He goes, well, let's go get your drums. So we literally walked down there and picked up my drums and walked them back to that warehouse. And I was in Asheron the next day, or that same day. So I was kind of happier at that point, too. You know, it was like I knew Nocturnus was falling apart at that point. So, and Vince had a ton of songs for Asheron already, and he had a good little thing going already you know they had the first album out right to the black mass was already out so i i thought well you know this would be a nice little change for me to just do something different so i went ahead and just did that and then i guess they got a drummer in nocturnus and they lasted like six months 
and they recorded two songs for Earache. And one of those songs was an old song that I had came up with the ideas and lyrics for. <laughs> so they even stole a song from me after after they kicked me out and put it on that two-song thing from Moribund. Yeah. yeah. It, it had mummified and, and uh, disturbing, I mean, uh, <laughs> and uh, Possessed the Priest. Yeah. So Possessed the Priest was my song. I came up with the title. I came up with all the words. They changed some of the words for that version, but... It was an old Nocturna song back when actually Vince was in the band with, with Bateman and me. So they stole that and they recorded that two song thing and Eric didn't like it and dropped them from the label. And once they dropped them from the label, they just kind of completely imploded at that point and broke up. So they lasted about six months after they fired me. Oh, man. Well, wow. Yeah. yeah. Right, what, what a story. story. <laughs> um,. Yeah. Can I ask one question about that? How long had Lou and the other guys copy written the name while you were still in the band? Do you know how when that took place? Well, the, again, you have to realize this is when we only had snail mail, right? Right, right. And it takes a while to trademark a name. So I believe probably right before we went, right after we released Thresholds, Lou probably sent in, and what I, from what I found out was... Um, there's three people on the trademark, Lou, Sean, and Mike. Now, they didn't tell Mike about it. It was basically Lou came up with the whole plan to steal the band from me, and Sean was, they were like best friends, so he kind of like went along with them on that, and funny, because Sean didn't write one thing on the key. Nothing, you know? So the two guys that did the least amount in the band stole it from me. <laughs> yeah. Ah. So... Yeah, but, you know, like I said, at that point, I really didn't even care anymore. And so I don't think they even got an answer till probably we got back off the tour with, with, uh, with, with Confessor. And then once Lou found out that he owned the name, that's when they went ahead and fired me. Lou and Sean knew, knew right from the beginning, but even Mike, Mike had told me later on, because, you know, until they actually told me they wanted to fire you and they own the name, but they put my name on it, too, without even asking me. Because at that point, I didn't know what to do, and I just kind of, like, went along with it. Because he told me he was kind of sorry that he ever did that. Because they didn't last very long anyway. Right. But, uh, so, you know, people got greedy and it ruined everything. Basically, that's that's the truth. Wow. Um, and did you, I guess, you know, we, we know with Mike Davis, did you ever reach any sort of resolution with uh, Lou Panzer or Sean McNenny, or was there any um, kickback from them over Nocturnus AD? No, I never, I still don't have anything to do with either one of those two. I, don't, I could care less if they, if they were rotting in front of me. I'd probably help them rot. So they can fuck off for all I care. <laughs> Okay. Now, Mike okay. Davis, like he told me, he was sorry about all that, and he he shouldn't have went along with it. But he said at first, you know, when when Lou did send the trademark in, they put his name on it, but he didn't sign anything. He said Lou was the one that was the main person that did it all. And when after we got back off the tour, you know, Lou told him, "Oh, I own the name now, and we're going to fire Browning and this and that." And he just kind of like was like, "Well, whatever," you know. He was kind of getting fed up with the whole situation as well really like i said they were even fighting on the tour 
Yeah. yeah. Keyboard players, right? <laughs> yeah, they yeah. really are. I mean, that's, that's what it came down to. He just, Lou, wanted to run the band. He, he couldn't stand, you know, his ego got so... And like I said, he wasn't even in a band before Nocturnus. Never. <clears throat> he was a cook at, at, at Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs> so he got he got put in a really good situation and his head blew up yeah. you know got this huge ego and he wanted to run the band and that's uh, the same thing that happened the second time with them after they put out Ethereal Tombs it happened again with Lou speaking of Ethereal Tombs my last question about um, those guys <laughs> is uh, w did any of your ideas or your material actually make it onto Ethereal Tombs no. no, the only thing, like I said, was that when they put out that two-song demo at, right in 93, it ended up on that Moribund 7-inch, the Nocturna 7-inch. Yeah. That, one of the two songs was actually a song that, that we, that Bateman and me and Gino and Vince were, were playing, actually playing back then. So, even Mike didn't write any of that. They changed a few parts in it, but the main parts of the songs, Gino and Bateman really wrote the guitar parts. And I think even Vince wrote part of it, one or, one or two of the rhythms in that song as well. So and I came up and, with the title, and, and <laughs> so yeah, they kind of stole that. But now everything on Ethereal Tunes was was done way after me, so that there, it was nothing from me. Okay, just asking, and you know, you mentioned that you joined Acheron, and um, you're in Acheron uh, for several recordings through the '90s. Uh, and and one thing I wanted to get to though is you mentioned earlier that um, you started uh, after death, uh, I guess around the same time that those guys put out Ethereal Tomb, the late '90s, right? Right, right. And with after death, uh, there was the Retro Nomicon collection that was put out by Iron Pegasus Records, but beyond that, it's stuff that's um, not not easy to find. But stylistically and lyrically speaking, does it play into the story that you're trying to tell on The Key and Paradox? Because it seems like it's kind of a companion... The After Death demos seem like a good companion piece to Nocturnus and Nocturnus AD. Is that is that fair to say? Well, no, not really. Um, now, Paradox okay. is, for sure. But the, the After Death stuff, I made sure it was actually... It's a cult-oriented music, all of it. Um, yeah. I, I, a lot of it is Crowley-oriented type stuff, and I, I was really kind of more wanting to do with After Death what I kind of wanted to do with Nocturnus in the beginning. It was more. It's, uh, Nocturnus started out as more of an occult band than a sci-fi band, <clears throat> and I will say that Mike Davis brought more of the sci-fi in it in the beginning. Of course, I've, I've loved sci-fi my whole life. When I was a little kid, I loved all the old sci-fi stuff and uh, I was hugely into it so when Mike wanted to bring some ideas into I was totally into it and for it and and even able to help you know implement it all in and in, in my own way kind of bringing the evil into the sci-fi <laughs> and kind of putting the two together so um, but as far as uh, after death I wanted that to be more of an occult band Mm -hmm. And and it, it, if you look at the lyrics, it is, and so, you know there was some occult stuff, of course, in in, in, in Nocturnus too, and and Morbid Angel too. <laughs> so I've, I've always kind of had it in there. Uh, so that's probably why it seems like it, it's a good companion to it because of, of my writing style and and what I like to write about. 
and After Death was all about that. But if you look into it, there's really nothing that connects back to the key, but Paradox is all about that. Yeah. I wanted to make sure After Death was not Nocturnus AD, or Nocturnus, okay. and, and that's why uh, we were tuned differently. We were tuned a little lower in D, and, and the Nocturnus stuff was in E flat. So when we, we uh, when I decided to do Nocturnus AD again, I said, you know, I told the After Death guys, well, we got to tune up to E flat because we were playing a lot of Nocturnus songs um, in After Death when we play shows. So, you know, there was a crossover kind of there for sure, but we were playing the Nocturnus songs in D, so they didn't sound quite right. They sounded a little different, a little deeper, heavier. And so when, when I decided to do Nocturnus AD again, I used all the same people in After Death, but I said, we got to make sure that, that After Death and Nocturnus AD doesn't sound the same. So let's go ahead and tune to E flat for Nocturnus AD, which was what Nocturnus was in instead of D and go ahead and you know, go right back into the lyrics that I wanted to continue off of the key you know, the stories I should say and I took well like Lake of Fire and Standing in Blood's a little story so Seizing the Throne is like the third version but the third continuance of that of course you got Neolithic and Paleolithic that's the next period in history and and four songs on the on the second side of or you know the last four five basically songs of uh, paradox all go with the key story that's on the second side of the key that starts with uh andromeda strain okay and so and to make sure yeah paradox is a complete like right where the key left <clears throat> off kind of situation lyric wise especially and i'm glad you clarified that it's it's um it's a little tough to follow sometimes for people uh, and w with After Death, what I was getting at, um, just to clarify, you know, there's there's uh, titles like um, Reviving the Gods, Secret Lords of the Star Chambers, um, and I noticed sometimes uh, like ancient Egyptian um, types of imagery and things. It, it, I guess what I'm getting at is in some respects that has to do with things that we might classify as science fiction. Um, it, it, like, like, would you agree that there's things in like ancient Egyptian mythology and the occult that uh, would explain things that, that, that people might attribute to interdimensional travel or extraterrestrials? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Lords, of, Lords of the Black Path, um, things like that, uh, they, they were, um, their stories of, of most of them are ancient Egyptian stuff, and After Death had a lot to do with um, ancient Egyptian magic. And mm -hmm. that's where most of that came in, but a lot of that had astral travel in it. So, um, that the Star Chamber was something that is actually a magical thing, um, where the priest uh, that would, were, when, the, when the Pharaoh died, and they would have the, uh, the ceremony and, and take all the entrails out of the pharaoh and put them in canopic jars uh, to prepare for, for putting them in the tomb, the, the priests would perform a secret ritual where they would actually take out the pituitary and pineal glands from, 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 from the pharaoh and they would eat it. And it would, get, it would actually be like DMT. And they would go on this trip, basically, and they would go to this room where all the, the gods like the Egyptian gods were and they would converse with them so that's 
kind of like where, where, where the Star Chamber song came from. <laughs> it's about that secret ritual that the priests would do where they eat the pineal gland and pituitary gland and uh, the uh, DMT that's in there would make them have a, a, an experience to where they would actually go into this chamber and, and be able to speak with the gods. Because the pharaoh was the only one that was supposed to be able to do that. But once the pharaoh dies, the secret priest, the priest of, of the pharaoh, in the embalming situation, they would they would uh, they would actually eat the pituitary and pineal gland and 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 have a DMT experience, where they would meet the uh, the, the gods in a in a secret room. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing to think about. Um... Yeah, and more more than sci-fi, it's science. You know, it's like science of ancient Egypt more than sci-fi because it really did happen. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at is I think sometimes a lot of what we think of as science fiction are things that uh, you know we we can look for explanations uh, for you know throughout human history. Um, that's well, that yeah, it's a trip. The the big divide between fantasy and sci-fi. Sci-fi still has some basis in. Uh, technology and history and science in general and fantasy is just you know for sure for sure you know it just goes wild yeah you know like like how you know a lot of the, the chambers and, and the pyramids they line up with certain stars at, at certain nights and the, the stars shine through the shaft and shine light into the chambers and that's how they would yeah. astrally travel through that shaft to those stars so um that's the kind of things that I liked writing about in After Death because that, that was basically what it was for. And I, like I said, I've been into Crowley for a long time, Aleister Crowley, and, and and reviving the gods was pretty much like what he did. He took a lot of the Golden Dawn rituals, which were situated in Christian mythology, <clears throat> and using Christian god names, and he replaced them with, with Egyptian god names, like like uh, you know with the Star Ruby. So he would take the formulas that uh, the Golden Dawn would use and replace the Christian god names with Egyptian god names, therefore kind of invoking the Egyptian current, which was what what people call the 93 current. So he kind of revived that. So reviving the gods is kind of like how Crowley revived the ancient Egyptian uh, mysteries and and rituals through um, where they actually came from, from the Christians. Because the Christians stole them from the Egyptians, and the Egyptians probably stole them from the Sumerians. <laughs> right. It's a it's like it's a Western magical uh, re repurpose of these familiar archetypes. Certain, uh, you know, certain things, certain certain structures. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. they're definitely formulas. Um, like even like you know people that are familiar familiar with like INRI that's on the top of the cross. That's that's a magical formula. That's not. It's it, people don't even know what that means. But Crowley had a lot of magical formulas that were like Adam A D A M. Um, those kind of things. Th- those are actually magical formulas. Um, they're not just names. Right. What was it? I N R I was supposed to be uh, King of the Jews or something. Yeah, but that's not really what it what it is. It's it's, it's got other. It's got and and, and even Jehovah Y H V H the real. Uh, idea of a YHVH is an actual magical formula as well. So, yeah, numerically and, and formula, <clears throat> formula-wise. We're, we're tapping into the, the heavy hole spinoff of the occult right now. Um, we've been very candid in the past, Mike. We've talked to people uh, 
who have very occult beliefs. We've talked to Christian metalheads and um, everyone in between, and we're always respectful of people's beliefs. I find this very interesting, honestly. Um, now, talking like this, I imagine you probably place uh, an emphasis on the idea of music as ritual. You talked before about um, the primitive nature of vocals and drums. Um, just what what is there in music for you uh, that is of a spiritual nature or, or that is like um, relevant to what we're talking about? Well, I, I would say it's a lot of that goes into the performance end of it. Like when I play a show, I don't even know what's going on half the time. <laughs> it, I get taken over when I start playing playing a show and and I just <laughs> let it kind of flow out because for me, I've made a lot of mistakes in live shows, stuff like that because I can't control what, what I do. Well, a lot of bands they'll go on a tour and they'll say the same things to the same crowds oh you're the best crowd you know on this whole tour you know they'll say the same things between every song you can almost like verbatim their sets you know from night to night you'll hear the same things and and I, I don't even know what I'm going to say in between each song Yeah, I just kind of like once I get on that stage I become like I just kind of like go into another kind of dimension and I don't even like people around me when I play, like like people coming up behind me when I'm playing on the drums and stuff. It kind of gets me out of my 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 zone that I get in when I start to play. It's like I know even our guitar players. They're like you know it's just like a whirlwind. It's like once you start clicking those sticks, we just got to follow you. <laughs> and and it is. It's really strange. It's like I don't like people around me when I play, like around close to me because I feel like this energy comes out and and i just let it flow because if i start thinking about what i'm doing with the speed that we play these songs at and and with trying to play drums and sing and remember all that stuff if i start thinking about something it's over yeah it's, it's already over. long gone you know it's it's like if i think about a little mistake that i made or something that thing's long gone <laughs> so if i get stuck thinking about that i'm already way past that in the song and now I'm losing concentration of the song itself, and and I it's weird because I don't really have a concentration of the song. I just kind of click the sticks and go, and that's why I've never wanted to do things with click tracks or backing tracks or anything like that. Uh, everything's got to be done live. I don't want an intro is one thing, you know, to have some of that sequenced, but as far as once I click those sticks and we start playing the actual song, I don't want anything. But I'm like this one of those composers that's up front that just goes like Leopold goes crazy you know <laughs> with a wild hair just like kind of you know but that's the way I kind of see it it's like I, I, I don't know what I'm doing when I'm playing half the time uh, and sometimes I go back and listen to it and I'm like wow did I do that did I, did I say that did I? <laughs> I don't even remember what I say in, in between the songs sometimes and there's things I want to say sometimes like oh go buy our shirt or something and I won't even remember that you know, yeah. half the times like somebody will say to, in a band like, "You didn't tell anybody to go buy our our shirts, <laughs> or you didn't <laughs> say this or that about this." And I'm like, "Sorry, you know, <laughs> I'm in another zone. Once I click those sticks, I'm out of there." I think there's there's something to be said for that, and and something that should be appreciated for many for anybody who uh, happens to be experiencing your performance in that in that certain time because that performance is unique to the time and place that you're in, right? So, um, you know... But yeah, they're all different. You know, we, we, If we play two shows, 
like uh, when we went to Australia and we played two shows in the same place, uh, you know, Friday and Saturday, we did completely different sets. I didn't wow. want to do the same set two nights in a row, you know, things like that. It's just, I don't know. You can watch our shows and you'll never hear me do the same thing twice, basically. You know, the saying the same thing or doing the same thing. Everything's always a little bit different. And that's why, in a way, I don't mind us not having, being able to tour. I mean, I have a daughter. I have a really good job. I have a house. I can't just take off on a peanut butter and jelly tour, you know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, I can't do it. I can't, I, you know, I can't afford it. I can't yeah. afford to do that. I'm not living at home. I'm, you know, I've got a responsibility. <laughs> and so the fact that we only do maybe six or seven shows a year, it makes them, to me, a lot more special. So, and yeah. just luckily that because I do have a long career and some, some big bands and things that worked out quite well, that I can do festivals most for most of those six or seven shows. And so, although we don't tour, we still can do some very good shows. Like we had Brutal Assault, Maryland Death Fest, Party Sands, and another uh, Sublime Terror in London, all for the summer. That was four really <clears throat> big festivals. Mm-hmm. And they all got canceled, but that was we were only going to do maybe five or six shows this year, and that's really pretty much we do no no more than seven or eight shows a year, and we kind of everybody kind of seems to like that situation. We all have jobs, so we can keep our jobs. We go you know out a couple times to Europe or South America or somewhere, and do a few select shows, and usually like Europe there'll be festivals now, and pr- pretty big festivals. So it's kind of nice. We could do a, a small club tour and play in front of you know a couple hundred people every night for 20 nights, <clears> or we could just go out there and play in front of 10,000 people in one in one show. So I kind of, you know, a lot of bands can't do that, which I'm, I consider myself very lucky that I can do that. But it to me it makes shows that we do do a lot more special. Mm-hmm. It's a unique situation. Because I don't want to be one of those bands that, oh, uh, I'll skip them this time they come around because they come around every year. You know, Mm -hmm. okay, there's two shows this month and I only got the money to go see one. Well, I won't go see Band X because I've seen them last year and the year before. And I'll get to see them next year. And and I don't want to become that. You know, I want to be... The good thing about when we play is we always have people come up to us whether we think we had a good show or not and go... That was like more of an experience. People say they felt like they were back in the 90s. You know, they, they, they felt an energy coming from the band. And we're just not up there playing these songs. You know, there's something else behind it going on for sure. Yeah, and um, on on that note, Mike, uh, you know, we, we do want to be respectful of your time. I got a lot of questions I could ask you, but... Um, something you mentioned. Okay, you give me the green light, man. Um, well, something you mentioned uh, uh, just before was you talked about uh, click tracks. Uh, obviously, I don't think quantizing and sound replacement, all that stuff, plays a big role. Um, when you came back to record uh, Paradox, you were, you worked with uh, Jared Pritchard, right? Um, who who is uh, and he's a sound guy. He's worked. I, I know. I I met him briefly when he was uh, on the road with Goat Whore a few years ago, uh, and I know he's worked with a lot of other prominent metal artists. What was it like recording with him? 
And could you speak a little bit to how it might be different recording Nocturnus AD than other bands because of the keyboard element? Well, the thing with Jared is, and a lot of people didn't know this, is that I knew Jared when he was in Eulogy. Because he was in a band called Eulogy in the 90s. Very good death metal band, too. And actually, they're, 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 they're back together again with most of the original member. I think every, every original member might be back in the band now. And um, they, they were a really good band back then, but they never got really, really popular because of the, they kind of came in a little late to the scene. But well, I lived in an apartment complex, and Jarrett lived in the same building as I did back then. And back then he just played guitar and eulogy. He didn't. He hadn't even ever run sound yet at that point. And so I used to, you know, his apartment was like upstairs and mine was downstairs, and they were kind of like across from each other. So I used to see him all the time, and you know we'd hang out and just talk and talk music, things like that. So I've known him since the '90s, and I saw him go from just being a guitar player in eulogy to being this amazing sound man and. You know, he went to school for it, and and he's got, like, an accreditation for Pro Tools that only so many people in the United States have. He's just, you know, whatever he does, he does it, like, over the top, like, perfectly. He's a a very big perfectionist, and that's probably the last thing I need is a perfectionist, Um, but because he's very, he's very, I don't want to say hard on people, but he, he demands the most that he can get out of you. I'll put it to you that way. You know, he, he's not just one of those engineers that sits there and just records what you play. He demands, like, you really want that to go on the record? You know, he'll say <laughs> stuff like that to you. <laughs> and you think that's good enough? You, you, you sure you want to leave it like that? You know, like, <laughs> I probably sang more times these songs over on Paradox than I've ever done in any mm-hmm. album. You know, he, he makes you overthink everything. And not in a bad way, but just like, he wants perfection out of you. And we used a tape machine for the drums, 24 track tape machine. He had just bought that. And I was like, holy shit, you know, his studio's in Orlando and we're in Tampa. So it was feasible. We didn't have to fly anywhere and stay in hotels or anything like that. You know, we literally were able to drive there and record on the weekends. He, uh, he luckily he was so busy with people like Gohor and stuff, uh, that, he had like a month off and we're and just it just happened to be like perfect timing for us to he had just bought the 24 track tape machine and he had that month off and we literally got in there every weekend and recorded the album and then we sat on the recording for like two months while he went out and did some more touring and then that was like in like august and september and then he went out for like october november and december and and did a bunch of touring again with goat whore and a couple other bands and then uh Back in, in late December, he came back, and in January, he mixed the album. So we kind of sat on it for a couple months, you know, just because he was out there touring and doing sound. But he's, he's, a, he's like, he demands the most out of you. You know, like, certain people will do that. Certain producers will do that. He, he did a lot of production on the album as well. He didn't just engineer it. So... You know, I mean, we even had him do uh, the last lead on the instrumental number nine. The last lead and in, in the last two leads at the end is actually Jarrett playing guitar. Huh. So we even had him record two leads. <laughs> so not wow. only did he record and engineer the album, but he also actually played uh, on the last two leads 
of the last song. <laughs> I so, yeah, I actually like I saw said, he's been a friend of mine for a really long time. So it it was it was kind of like we've been friends for a long time. So when I realized how good he's become of a sound man, and he's an amazing guitar player too, as you can now go back and listen to those two leads, the last two leads on that song, on the on the album, and 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 he he just knows what he's doing, you know. And Nocturnus has always been a guitar oriented band, so it was good to be able to have a really good guitar player basically record the album. Yeah, because his ideas um, with how to how to you know get the guitar sounds and things like that. A lot of producers, they have. Like they even sell these producer packs now. So these certain producers sell these little packs that you can buy and download and make your band sound like every other band. Oh yeah, and yeah. That's <laughs> not what I wanted. I, I don't want to do that. You know, I want Nocturnus to sound like Nocturnus, or I should say Nocturnus AD to sound like Nocturnus did. And Jarrett was around back then. You know, he lived in Tampa, so he saw Nocturnus. We, Eulogy and Nocturnus have, have played together before back in the 90s and he was very familiar with, with with the band and he knew it understood it understood what Nocturnus was and saw it you know in person so I thought man he would be like the perfect person to mix the album because I could have gone back and done some stuff with Tom Morris and did that again but I really wanted somebody that kind of understood the music too I should say you know not that Tom doesn't but was in a band and recorded and, and did these same kind of things and understands from a different point of view. Yeah, uh, and it, it I definitely produced uh, uh, an excellent sounding album. Uh, I take it you'd be going back to Jared, or is it too early to say? Well, no, I'm pretty sure we will. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't think uh, I, I don't think there's really anybody else. I mean, we've worked it with him now on this album, and he knows our ins and outs and what we need and what we don't need, and he knows. He definitely knows how to get our sound, and he's gotten even more stuff in his studio there in Orlando. And like I said, it's very convenient for us because it's in Florida. It's only like an hour and a half drive away, so it's really not too far for us to go and you know stay there for over the weekend and record. Right. No, it seems uh, natural. It's just uh, lately. Well, late. You know, he's usually out touring with them, so it's kind of hard to get a big block of time with him. But it. Lately, of course, nobody's touring, so he has been doing some of his own stuff. In fact, he's he's got that band, uh, Poker Morte. It's like a Doom kind of band. They're starting to do a record as well, and they have a song where he's gotten a whole bunch of people to sing one of the backup choruses on it, and I just did that for him. For him. So yeah, he's an old friend, so that's the way I kind of saw it, having an old friend that is also now a, a, a complete professional that wasn't a complete professional when, when you were friends, you know, to see him grow up and do that and become one of the best sound men around and, 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 and not just in the studio, but live as well. And he does stuff like one of, one of the bands he used to run sound for was Dr. John. He's, he, he does like reggae band. He, he did a lot of reggae bands too. So he, he doesn't just do metal. He's, he's pretty well-rounded in, in everything. Talking about sound engineers, something I did want to ask you is um, maybe even like back back in the original Nocturnus run or in general uh, with um, Nocturnus AD, what do you encounter problems with a keyboard being mixed into live sound for a death metal band and engineers that aren't used to that? 
yeah, a lot of people were were like, "What? What are you trying to do here?" You know, <laughs> and and it, in Morris Sound, it really wasn't like that though. I mean, Tom's recorded so many different things, you know, different types of bands. You know, they did Crimson Glory there, so they've done a lot of power metal. They did even did a Warrant album there at Morris Sound, so they're used to recording anything that basically that comes in there. But the reason we used Tom was because Eric made us basically i kind of liked i liked a lot of stuff that jim morris did and of course scott burns and tom was probably the the person i wasn't too sure about because i didn't know him that well i knew i knew scott pretty well and scott's more like a metalhead kind of guy and tom isn't he's more of a businessman type type of thing but because tom did the morbid angel record digby from eric was like no he's gonna do your record you know i was like well why can't we have Scott or, or Jim do it? You know, and they're like, nope, nope, nope. Uh, Tom did, you know, the Morbid Angel record, so he's going to do your record. So we really didn't have a choice in who was going to record it. And, you know, it, it came out the way it did. There, It suffered because of the bass and a whole bunch of stuff. My drums were really kind of, I used, I had concert toms, which had no bottom heads. And... They were like, and more sounded like, man, these drums sound terrible. The sound <laughs> quality, you know, I didn't, I didn't, we didn't really have a, a, a huge budget back then. We had a, a budget that was, would sound big now, but back then it really wasn't a lot for more sound. So we didn't have the type of budget to go buy new equipment or anything like that. I had old drum heads on there, cymbals that were, you know, not in that great a shape. And, you know, my drums, like I said, they were concert toms and Tom was like, I don't even want to mic these things. They, they're not even made for for studio. So when we did um, when we did uh, thresholds, he actually made me rent a drum set uh, to do thresholds. So <laughs> thresholds was done on a completely different drum set than the one I owned because Tom would just not let me bring that drum set back into Morris Sound again. <laughs> When you went on the road on tour, did you bring a sound guy with you, or were you at the mercy of random house sound men? What happened on the Grind Crusher tour? We got really lucky because we never had a sound man, and, I, and we still don't have a sound man right now. When we do these festivals and stuff, I wish we we could afford one, but basically, most of the time we do shows since we only do a few a year. Everything's paid for, but we usually don't make very much money on top of that, and. And, and a lot of times it's like, well, we got five people in the band, you know, we'll, we'll pay your tickets both ways, we'll pay for your hotels, we'll pay for your food, and you might get a few hundred dollars on top of that, you know, because you gotta think, to go to Europe for five peoples, you're looking at five grand right there. So, yeah. it just been plane tickets. So it's kind of hard for us because we don't go over there and do 10 shows and, and you know, the, where we get half of that money is paying back the this and that and you know so it's kind of like we can only do certain things but it does cost a lot for us to go there and come back uh so we've never been able to really afford having a sound man come with us and and do all that stuff but like i was going to say on the grind crusher tour uh the bus came and picked us up in tampa and our first show was in new york so we rode to new york with and the tour manager was on the bus and we started talking and he's like well, he was the tour manager for all three bands for the whole tour, basically, the Grind Crusher tour. And he told us, well, you guys are only doing a 35-minute set. And he goes, I happen to run sound. 
And we're like, oh, really? Who'd you run sound for? And he goes, oh, Fate's Warning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he said, I ran sound for Fate's Warning for, for several years. And we're like, oh, you want to run sound for us? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it was like, okay, and no problem. And he ended up being an amazing sound man. The yeah, funny thing sure. about that is, is, yeah, so he ran sound for us on, on the Grind Crusher Tour, and that was the only thing I've ever done where we actually had a sound man for, for, that we had for the whole tour, you know, or even live, most live shows. So like all the Nocturnus stuff, we've always been at the mercy of after death and even Nocturnus AD, we've always been at the mercy of whoever's running that board that night. And 99% of the time, they don't know who we are or never heard <clears throat> any of our music. So, but the Brian Crusher tour, we got really lucky and, and this guy, you know, like he was a very good sound man and he was happened to just be uh, a tour manager for the tour only. So he's like, oh, I happen to run sound too. If you guys, I'll run sound for you for free since I'm already on the tour and you know, it's only 35 minutes set. You only play like six songs. And we're like, okay, sure. You know, when you told us he did Fate's Warning, we're like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and he ended up being an amazing sound man. And the next time he came through Tampa after that tour, he was with a very small at that time unknown club band called White Zombie. Oh, oh and, wow. All right. Yeah. And he ended up being the sound man for White Zombie and Rob Zombie for the next 15 years. Wow. All right. All the way, yeah, he, he he did the White Zombie from when they were playing clubs all the way to when Rob Zombie quit to do movies. Wow. He was the tour manager and the sound man for Rob Zombie and White Zombie. <clears throat> and the last biggest band that he did, well, he's probably, I, think he, he's, I don't know who he's with right now. I'm not sure, I don't remember. Uh, but the last band that I saw him with was Soundgarden. Wow. He was running sound for Soundgarden the night Chris uh, Cornell died. Every time he comes through Tampa, you know, he calls me up still. We're still really good friends. And his name's Ted, and, and he'll call me up like they were like Soundgarden was touring with Nine Inch Nails, and he's like, "Mike, I'm in Tampa. You want to come to the show? <laughs> come backstage, hang out with me." I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> so he's done tons of bands. I mean, he's done some really, really huge things. Like I said, you know, Soundgarden's one of the biggest bands you can think of in rock, and everybody knows who Chris Cornell is, and he was like the tour manager and sound man for for Soundgarden, and also Chris Cornell's solo stuff so wow. he did Rob Zombie for years you know White Zombie into Rob Zombie and then he did you know Soundgarden he did tons of bands so he he turned out to be like you know one of the best sound men in the country yeah it doesn't get much bigger than that for rock rock music that's crazy no no I mean like I said he was doing stadiums and yeah. stuff like that with, with Rob Zombie and, and, and you know the, the big Rob Zombie corn tour and all that stuff he did all that I mean every bit of it one last thing I did want to ask you about briefly. I don't know if people realize, uh, and I, if I even have the story correct, but isn't it isn't it true that you um, suffered an injury and went through uh, back surgery in 2012 in order to be able to play drums again? Yeah, I, I've, I've got... It's back then, well, I was in a pretty good car accident. <clears throat> I, I was with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and, and my daughter was only three, I think. And my girlfriend's daughter was two, and we went to uh, Chuck E. Cheese, believe it or not, like on a Friday night. And we were leaving there, and we got on the interstate, 
and there was an accident, or not an accident, but there was a um, uh, construction. And you know how when there's construction, it all goes down to like one lane, and yeah. everybody stopped real fast, and the guy behind me did not. And he hit us from behind about 50 or 60 miles an hour, and it knocked us. I had an SUV, and he had a F-150. It knocked us into the, through the guardrail. I, I, when I saw, I saw these headlights coming because it was dark, and I realized, I saw them in my rearview mirror, and I was like, this guy's not going to stop. You know, they were just coming right at me, and I started to turn the wheel a little bit to the left because everybody had stopped, and, and if I hadn't turned my wheel to the left a little bit, we would not be talking because he hit us so hard, we went off the side of the interstate through the guardrail and hit the guardrail on the other side of the interstate. And it totaled both vehicles. And if I hadn't have turned the wheels, because when he hit us, we were stopped. And we went that far into the median, everything straight through the guardrail, all that was just demolished. That's how hard he hit us. And if my wheels weren't turned, that's how we would have been crushed between the, the car in front of me. Wow. So I got lucky that I turned the wheel just enough so when he hit us, we went off to the left instead of into the next car. Because I saw the all I could see were these headlights coming in. I tried to get out of the way, you know, like turn my wheel, wheel real quick so he might hit the car in front of me instead. And I couldn't get away that fast, so I started to turn to the left a little bit, and then he hit us, and we went off to the side instead of into the front and the car in front of me. So after that accident, my back was just killing me. And I, I, I've been reading water meters for most of my life. Uh, in Tampa so I do tons of bending over already so I already had you know a little bit of back problems from doing my job for as long as I have and then that accident just made it way worse so they said uh, you know I, I went in for an MRI and I had two herniated really bad herniated discs so uh, I went into the same place that Pete did Pete had three herniated discs and I had two he had one, two lower ones like I did, and then he had one in the middle of his back, too. So we had a, pretty much basically the same injury, and we both went to the same place to have surgery. Pete, uh, Sa Pete Sandoval of Morbid Angel, you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, so you know, he had the same back problems, and he, he went into the Laser Spine Institute in Tampa, and so did I. We had the same exact surgery. So, uh, and he still has back problems, too. But now, <laughs> it's funny because... I had two herniated discs, and and um, after the operation, they fixed supposedly fixed it. But two months after the operation, I'm still you know kind of walking, trying to walk again, and my left foot just went. It dropped. It just went numb and dropped, and I couldn't even hardly pick it up. And they had to put me in for a second surgery, and that stopped. But I've got like some of my left leg is numb now, like the sciatic nerve path. It's all numb. It's like I can't hardly feel anything in those areas. So it's still kind of hard for me to play a little bit with my left foot because sometimes it's still at the bottom even swells up where they where they did the uh, where they I had some operation on the bottom from a long time ago before that where I stepped on a nail at work mm. and it kind of it, it's weird because the same nerve that goes from your back all the way down to your big toe that was damaged when I stepped on the nail a long time ago. That was back in '95. So it kind of compounded the problem and made it even worse. And now I have five herniated discs in my back, including the one, the two that they fixed, L4 and L5, 
now I got L1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 all herniated again. And L5's got like a pinched nerve, which sometimes really bothers me. But uh, more than anything, I've just kind of learned to just live with it because I can't have another surgery, they said. They said, we can't do a third surgery on your back. You know, there's a good possibility where you could lose being able to walk at all. And I don't want to end up in a wheelchair. So it's kind of like any other kind of hernia. Say you have a a regular front-type hernia. Well, if you go lifting 50 pounds after you have a hernia, you're going to re-herniate yourself. Yeah. So the same thing happens with your back. When you have a a herniated disc fixed in your back, if you do the same things you've been doing, it's going to re-herniate again. I might as well have not even had the operation because it, it made things worse. And I had to have a second operation, and now I can't have another, a third one, because they said they don't want to go back in there again, because uh, it could, you know, leave me in a wheelchair. So I don't, I don't want to go through that. So now I've got five herniated discs, and, and there's nothing I can really do about it. So more than anything, I've just kind of learned to deal with it. Wow, man. The uh, the, the struggles of a blue-collar drummer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, for me, I think most of my back problems come from my job because of how many years I was bending over and reading water meters. Like when I was a meter reader, I, I used to read three to 400 houses a day, and that's a lot of bending over five days a week when you think about it. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, when you read a water meter, you don't bend at the knee, you bend over. Like, you know, to look down inside of a hole. You can't bend your knees and look down inside of a hole. You have to kind of look over, you know, like the wrong kind of bending. But, you know, I was young through most of that time, so it never bothered me. Now that I'm, you know going to be 56 next month it's like holy shit now my back kills me <laughs> and i've got tons of herniated discs because of all the bending over that and i still have the same job so but i'm not a meter reader anymore i just work on meters more now so i don't bend over as many times a, a, a day but i still do a lot of bending over and shoveling and stuff like that so my job's not easy but it you know it's like i said i i went from two herniated discs after the accident and now i've got five so it definitely, Jeez. and I don't play that as much as I, you know, I don't practice all the time and stuff like that. So I, I say most of my back problems comes from my job. Now, I'm sure so, some of them come from the drums, of course. So it seems like a lot of drummers end up with back problems. Yeah, we've uh, well, we we spoke. We had one episode with John Engman, who was a drummer who suffered tremendous back problems uh, that he attributed to uh, playing extreme music without proper form. Uh, and he actually was able to work around that, and he's got new projects where he uses drum pads and, and different things like that. But uh, you know, we're, we're glad at least that you've been able to uh, you know work around that and and uh, you know give us the music you've been able to give us. I know it's, it sucks to have an ongoing back problem, but uh, Mike, as as we uh, as we wrap up here, we usually ask our guests to recommend one older uh, release and one newer release by any artist they like, just as a recommendation to us and our listeners uh, before we close out. Oh wow, <laughs> that's always so hard because there's so many. I mean. To me, I mean, I still like, probably, I'd either have to say for the old release, I would have to go with either like Slayer's Hella Weights or Celtic Frost to make Ethereon. One of those two would definitely yeah. be my older release. I mean, St- Hella Weights strong. was just like, I liked it better than Rain. I still like Hella Weights better than Rain and Blood. I mean, Hella mm-hmm. Weights is just an evil album and it just has that sound. And I guess it's just the period that I grew up in. That was that was what was big. You know, by the time uh, Rain and Blood came out, I was already in Morbid Angel and playing drums and stuff like that. But 
when I first started playing, it was, you know, Show No Mercy and Hella Waits. And when Hella Waits came out, it just blew my mind, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and of course, back then, to make a theory on, too, that was when I was in Morbid Angel. That came out. And that just, that album was just amazing to me. You know, it didn't have the speed that, that Slayer did back then. <clears throat> but, wow, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, an atmospheric album. And I think some of the stuff that they, uh, did with some keyboard parts and timpanis and stuff like that in 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 uh, Celtic Frost probably was a little bit of something that 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 carried over into my situation of wanting to use that kind of stuff and and another one too would be Angel Witch's first album Angel Witch uh, Celtic Frost and Slayer Hella Waits yeah I still go back to the old stuff that I listen to that still more than anything new. <laughs> Is, is, is there anything metal or otherwise new that has caught your eye? Yeah, you know, I I really did like that Blood Incantation album that came out. Mm-hmm. There's a reason people are talking about it so much. You know, it's solid. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. good one. I mean, I, I just, it has a good feel to it. You know, that to me, that's, uh, I, it's a strange album, but it's definitely, I, I just, uh, it kind of has a, a certain kind of, uh, feeling to it, I, I, I guess I'd say more than technicality, because there's so many bands like like your band is just Artificial Brain is just amazing to me. The the speed you guys play at, I mean, I've heard some technical bands that just blow my mind, and, and I was like, I, I don't even know how these drummers play like they do, <laughs> and, and the speeds they do, and and I'm still old school myself. You know, it's been hard for me to break what I've been doing for so many years to try to get this new style of gravity blasting and things like that. And the, the, the heel and toe techniques and my, my feet just don't want to do anything than what they've been doing for the last 30 years. It's hard for me to switch out of, out of what I normally do to what people are doing now, because I watch these drummers now and they're super fast and, and super technical. And, and it's like, I don't even know how they do it, but they don't, hit the drums very hard most of the time and they rely on triggers a lot and I just I've never been that kind of person I love beating the shit out of a drum and not having to rely on triggers you know to do it or you know yeah or, I mean you're you're definitely preaching to the choir here that's that's kind of my you know even though I'm a vocalist but that's that's kind of my um, preference as a fan for what I want to hear and extreme metal drumming has become kind of a competitive sport uh, amongst the, the, the drummers so I would say that to hear um, an album like Paradox or any album that has that, that feel on the drums, it's refreshing sometimes uh, to get that much soul out of, out of the drum kit. I've never recorded to a click track ever in my whole life. Nothing. <laughs> no need to start now. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, it's like I, I do what I do. It's, it, I'm not the best drummer and I'm not the worst, but I'm definitely not the best or you know, anywhere near that, and I make a lot of mistakes, and I'm not, you know, but I'm me, and nobody sounds like me, and that's the thing that, that it's, for a drummer to be able to say that is, is I mean, you got certain drummers, you know, like Derek Roddy and people like that, and of course, Sean Reinhardt, and, and, that just had their own style as well, and a lot of those people came from a, uh, more of a, being, taking lessons for a really long time since they were little kids, and jazz, and things like that, but I was brought up just total metal and, and learning my own thing, and, and I think my unorthodox way of playing kind of gave me my own style. So, 
you know, and then putting the vocals in with it for most most of my bands just kind of gave it its own style altogether. Because although there's bands that say they they like, you know, have Nocturnus as an influence, I've still never heard a band that sounds like Nocturnus. Yeah, def- there's there's definitely a lot of bands that I think spring from that well. But um, you're abs- you're absolutely right. And on, you know, there's a million on, bands that sound like Morbid Angel out there, you know, and there's a million bands that sound like like Death or, or you know, there's a lot of bands that, that have copied other bands and taken it to the next level even. But nobody has copied Nocturnus yet still. I've yet to hear a band that I, I would say sounds like The Key. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those things where um, I think it garners more interest and, and respect as the years go on. You know what I mean? And people look back and put it into context. Uh, and hopefully we've been able to do that. 35 years later, that people are, would be like, I just heard the key for the first time. Oh, my God. You know, I, huh. I, I never, never thought that would happen, you know. And, and some people still, it's their favorite record, which it still blows my mind because I know, you know, all the problems we had recording with no bass to play with and you know on a terrible drum set and it was you know before pro tools it was done on a tape machine you know there's no quantizing or anything on that record so you know me knowing all the rawness that it does have it it, and it gave it its own sound but it's just kind of cool that people that to me i look at the way they play and it's like holy shit i could never play that great you know like 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 with that much speed or that much fast double bass or that fast of a blast and they're they're citing like Nocturnus is one of their favorite bands I'm like you're way ahead of what we ever did but you know like technicality wise but you know it it still surprises me when I how much people like that kind of stuff like when I met uh, the guys from Mayhem the first time they were like oh my god it's Mike Browning I'm like what <laughs> you guys are Mayhem you know? <laughs> it's just kind of funny yeah yeah, um, th- thanks a lot, Mike. Yeah, it, it's like you said, there was, there's a lot to your story, uh, as you know, obviously, and we appreciate you uh, sharing it with us. Um, and as we close out, just are there any uh, any last words you want to say to your fans and to our listeners? Well, like like mainly it's just like thanks for following me for all these years. Uh, I, I still, it's kind of weird because I'm just a metalhead myself, and, and, and when I meet people, they're like, Mike Browning, you know, and I'm like, um, I'm just a metalhead, dude. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, just, I, I just don't feel like I'm anywhere above anybody in any way, and it just seems so weird to me still, even after all these years, that people think about things that way. And I mean, I'm grateful for it. Don't get me wrong, but it's just, it just still, still seems kind of weird, you know, because I just consider myself an old metalhead now, and, and, and an okay drummer and this kind of thing, you know. But I don't know where how I was able to do what I've done creative wise and do things that other people haven't been able to do or haven't done or came up with at first or whatever you want to call it. But it just kind of comes out, comes from nowhere (laughs) and, and just comes out of me. So I just want to thank everybody that's been following me for all these years. And, and especially, you know, the, the welcoming that paradox got coming back i i never expected that because with after death you know we put out quite a few releases and it got you know we have a following but it was never anything like what happened with paradox and and i i never expected people to say this is the perfect companion to the key because i expected well it's nowhere near as good as the key and you know that and 
I've had a lot of people tell me it's right there with it. And to me, I, I never expected to hear that. So, you know, it's just been, uh, <laughs> putting out Paradox has been a great thing. And I know it's going to be kind of hard to keep up the momentum. That's why we started writing right away again, because uh, these new songs we got, I think, are really right alongside with what's on Paradox. And I want to keep, even with this COVID-19 thing, I want to keep keep this going. You know, I want to keep the momentum yeah. that we have going, because I don't want to be laxed about it and take another 10 years to put out another record. That's for sure. So I want to keep going with what we have that people seem to really like. Yeah, man, and uh, you know we'll, we 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 hope it's not another uh, ten years, but we'll definitely have uh, our eyes peeled for Nocturnus AD and for whatever you do, uh, Mike. Uh, and we thank you again for taking the time to speak with us tonight. Um, and you know we'll we'll continue to be in touch uh, and let you know when this episode is up, man. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, thank you, and uh, y'all have a like I said, stay safe from all this crap going on. <laughs> Thanks, brother. You, you too, brother. Good. Yeah, thank you, oh. man. All the best, man. Have a good night. All right. Thanks. See ya. Alright guys, uh, w- one of my proudest moments here, uh, getting Mike Browning from Nocturnus on the show, and we thank him for his time and his candor. Um, not shy, uh, blue collar death metal hero, man, telling us his stories of the game, and we appreciate that. And uh, it's he's, he's actually a guest that um, some of our listeners have been asking us to get on the program, um, going back over the social media and when I did the Instagram live thing, so we're really glad we were able to get him on here. It's no secret that I'm a big Nocturnus fan, and it was a lot of fun for me to get him on the show, but also uh, check one off the list that our listeners have been asking us about. We're paying attention to when people are throwing the suggestions out, uh, and we're trying to keep it real like that for you. So um, I know I'm kind of going to go back and revisit some of those old Nocturnus recordings and, of course, the uh, Nocturnus AD Paradox album. Um, and, and, and check them out with some of that new newfound lore we got. But also, I want to encourage everybody to look up After Death, uh, Mike's band that, that he was doing uh, before Nocturnus AD, kind of between the, the eras, man, because that was really interesting material, too. Not doing bad with these death metal legends, you know? Getting a lot of really really great conversations in, and I'm excited Dusting about it. Dusting our shoulders off, man. Was, was that a little subtle flex over there, Tom? A podcast uh, flex? Maybe I just wanted to flex. <laughs> Yeah, um, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Got a new, uh, you know, just uh, new appreciation for the live show. Uh, you know, the man hates clicks. Got to let it all out on the stage, man. Uh, each time, so there's a lot of musicians that follow in those footsteps. So appreciate when you go see a band live. You're seeing, you're seeing some magic. You're seeing that art. Get mm-hmm. that art, son. That space magic, um, right. space mountain magic. <laughs> well, we're in Florida, but hold on. <laughs> uh, I snuck my recommendation in there, and you guys didn't even see it. I did a little like uh, magic segue trick, and I recommended After Death, 
Um, but we were, we were so fortunate. We were lucky that Mike Browning uh, tell, told us everything we wanted tonight. Um, we, had, we gave you an extra long Mike Browning interview. Uh, and, of course, to respect our format um, and be respectful of your time, uh, we're going to cut off the recommendations tonight. Right, guys? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, uh, that's yep. the case tonight. That's right. Oh, no. All oh, you guys are going to have to listen to uh, More Heavy Hole. To yeah. to. <laughs> you're gonna have to go find your own music this week but no the recommendations are gonna be back uh we just had a lot to ask mike about all his different projects and history and he was not shy to tell us uh in depth um all about it and we thank him for that so that being said if the listeners want to tell us all about their lives uh they could go to heavyholepodcast.com the phone number's there. The Heavy Hole Podcast uh, at, at gmail.com is, is available. The social medias are there. Let us know what's on your mind. Uh, recommendations included. I recommend everybody pick up a sticker pack, Justin. Yeah, listen. You got what? Your walls are bare. You put stickers on it. What do you got? You got, you got some sort of case. Maybe you got some sort of Milwaukee Sawzall case uh, that yeah. uh, you know is just looking a little too red. You want to cover that up with some respectful of your time stickers, some allegedly big will stickers. What are you going to do? You're going to go to heavyholepodcast.com slash shop. Uh, listen, I don't want to I don't want to pay all that shipping and handling. Let me support the post office. I'll take the burden of the shipping off your hands. You type in that promo code Chunky Riffs and I'll pay for Chunky Riffs. That's Chunky Riffs. Uh, Chunky Riffs is the promo code if you want the free shipping on your sticker pack. Uh, as Justin said, it goes on your Milwaukee Sawzall case, uh, your case of Nine Lives cat food, uh, the case that you're buying these alleged new microphones in and getting them smuggled into the country from wherever, t- whatever Tom's up to over there. I don't know. That's He's right. Crazy. Yeah, put them on your uh, Mountain Dew two liter bottles. Who cares? Yeah. We're, yeah. Mastic Shirley can do it too. Did I say that? Well, um, <laughs> But Mike Browning was our guest. We thank him again for his time. Uh, please go listen to that uh, Nocturnus AD album, Paradox, and also check out the After Death stuff. Uh, and listen to Heavy Hole Podcast, because we're going to be coming right back at you with some more recommendations uh, next episode when uh, when it fits our format better. But we do whatever we want here, right, guys? Sure can, because you know what number we are, right? Yeah, we're number one. Number one.